This is an AMI podcast. Keep the conversation going off the air. Your voice matters. Email feedback at AMI.ca or connect with us on Twitter at AMI-audio and let us know what you think about our programming. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. In the simplest terms, an absence of disease or illness would suggest that someone is in good health. Yet, it's worth pondering whether a lifetime of systemic exclusions might itself take a toll on our well-being. We know, for instance, that men continue to earn more than women and that people with disabilities are still underrepresented in the adult workforce. With the spread of COVID-19, commentators were quick to point out that poor, working class and racialized people have been the hardest hit. It's not a stretch to argue that perhaps who we are, where we live, and our educational and employment outcomes would impact on our health. Today, we discuss the social determinants of health. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta and I'm the host of the program and I'm delighted to welcome you to the program again and I'm so glad that you could be with us today. Just a quick reminder, as I like to say off the top of every program, if you'd like to keep up with the latest AMI-audio coverage related to the pandemic, please visit ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. If you are a regular listener to this show, you know that some of us, me, likes to throw in the phrase social determinants of health from time to time. And I felt that it wasn't really fair to use the term without fully defining it and understanding it. And so I'm very pleased to welcome to the program my guest today, who happens to be Dennis Repel, who is a professor of health policy and management at the School of Health Policy and Management at York University. He's the co-author of the second and updated edition of the Canadian Social Determinants of Health. He joins us today from Toronto. Hello and welcome to the program. It's so great to have you. Thank you. Hello. Uh, Let me start by asking you a really basic question. For the purposes of your research, how do you define health? Uh, Health can be defined as, as the World Health Organization states as a complete state of physical, mental and social well-being. And certainly it's a improvement over the medical definition of health in that it directs attention outside of one's body to Mm -hmm. the environment, to public policies, and so on. However, when we talk about the social determinants of health, which is about living and working conditions, we tend to fall back on using uh, traditional indicators such as uh, death rates or mortality disease rates or morbidity, and Mm -hmm. uh, it's easier to demonstrate how important living and working conditions are to people's health when you can demonstrate that particular groups live eight years less than mainstream Canadians. So for each of the determinants of health that we identify, we tend to uh, describe the situation And when we do relate it to health, we tend to use these more traditional biomedical indicators of Mm -hmm. uh, health and illness. 
you indicate 17 social determinants of health. Uh, how did you come to that number? How did you decide what to, to focus on and what to leave out of the conversation? Well, originally when we began work on this in 2002 and we had a national conference, we wanted to identify issues that had clearly been demonstrated to be important in the literature back then. We wanted to identify factors that could be easily understood. So each of the determinants of health that we use, such as housing or disability or education, people know what that means. And we also made sure that each of these determinants were clearly related to public policy that could be made by governing authorities. Mm -hmm. So each of these determinants of health is relevant to health, understandable to people, and clearly tightly related to what governments can do or not do to promote mm -hmm. their quality and equitable distribution amongst Canadians. These concepts may not seem quite so abstract to anyone at the moment because of the pandemic. And one of the things that becomes very clear when you look at your report is that the social determinants of health do have a bearing not just on the planning of not just on local health conditions but also globally can you expand on that for us well every one of the conditions i tend to focus on canada and other developed uh, nations mm -hmm. but uh clearly when we're talking about issues such as uh housing or uh food security these things are clearly relevant, even in wealthy developed countries. And in the case of uh, other countries, uh, you can just multiply their, their effect profoundly. The interesting mm -hmm. thing, though, has been historically, when you talk about the South or the developing world, nobody has any problem pointing to poverty or housing or uh, race as being important factors. But when we come back to Canada, historically, all of this tends to be put on the side. And mm -hmm. we have this retreat into the mantra of so-called healthy lifestyles. What's mm -hmm. amazing about this COVID-19 situation is I'm surprised how willing the media and public health authorities, to an extent, have been willing to direct attention to issues such as income and housing and precarious work. Uh, because mm -hmm. today, that's not really been the fact. Mm -hmm. That's true. It's a very interesting observation. And until you mentioned it, I hadn't actually even really considered it. But even before COVID-19 was a reality for all of us, uh, the perception of Canada is that we tend to fare much better than even our American neighbors. We have a socialized system of health care. And I think there's a number of places, uh, you know, magazines and other place sources that have cited Canada as being one of, if not the best place to live in in the world. So you might, we might be uh, we might be wondering why should we talk about the social determinants of health when everyone seems to be doing so well? Well, actually, we're not doing very well at all. The most <laughs> striking thing. Uh, yeah, if you want to compare ourselves to the United States, yeah, we're doing better. But the United States is the absolute worst outlier in, in any OECD country outside of maybe Turkey or Mexico. Uh, the situation in Canada and every one of the determinants of health falls much closer to the United States on the negative end than it does on the positive end, which is 
not only the Scandinavian countries, but just about every uh, continental country. For example, in terms of income inequality, we're kind of uh, right in the middle. We certainly do better mm-hmm. than the United States and the United Kingdom, but we fall well behind countries such as uh, Belgium and Austria and Sweden and the Netherlands and Germany. And we, mm-hmm. we have this very poor profile, not only in terms of income inequality, but food security, early child development, a whole range of issues. And we do that despite the fact that Canada is wealthier than just about all of these other countries in terms of its uh, gross domestic product, which is the size of the economy. Right. One of the things that I've found from reading other research is that for people who face a chronic amount of stress in their lives because of a degree of social disadvantage, they're often uh, dealing with some adverse health outcomes associated with that chronic stress. Is that something that came up in your research as well? What were the the mental and physical health outcomes then? Well, let me put it this way. When you're dealing with people that occupy uh, vulnerable social positions, such as less education, low income, indigenous ancestry, disability, Mm -hmm. they experience profoundly different living and working conditions. And the manifestation of these effects is in just about every single physical, mental, or social affliction that you can think of. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about type 2 diabetes, heart disease, arthritis, Uh, depression, psychotic episodes, hospitalizations, Uh, these living and working conditions profoundly affect the health outcomes all across the lifespan. And Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were to come along and say, okay, what about teeth? Well, teeth is the same thing, dental health, striking differences between people of different incomes, education levels, occupation levels, and so forth. So pretty well every single thing you can think of, school dropout, uh, delinquency, uh, being a victim of crime, being a perpetrator of crime, and as I listed, all those different illnesses and afflictions, these are profoundly important determinants of health. Let's turn to not all, but some of the determinants of health. And I'm going to start out by apologizing to you because we won't, I think, get to all 17 today, but we'll pick what I think are the most important. Starting with uh, income and wealth inequality, you alluded to some of this already. You said that Canada falls uh, somewhere in the middle. But over the years, you said the research goes back to 2002. Has the wealth gap or the income gap widened or has it gotten a bit closer? Uh, there's, there's different types of income. We look at market income, which is what people mm-hmm. get from their wages. That is profoundly increased over the last 20 years. You could then look at after-tax income, and that's the income inequality that exists after government programs kick in and the tax system kicks in. And that has managed the growth of income inequality, but uh, as it turns out, it still is increasing. If you look at poverty, which is the uh, manifestation of the most extreme forms of income inequality, you see that poverty rates, uh, I think we're ranked 26th worst out of 36 countries. Uh, Those rates have tended to be more or less constant, even if the uh, 
anti-poverty programs have all kicked in. However, the depth of poverty, the percentage by which people fall below the poverty line is uh, generally either staying the same or increasing. Uh, mm -hmm. Things are not getting better in terms of income and income inequality. Statistics Canada did a study where they followed people over time. And what they found was compared to the wealthiest percent of people, the other 80% are significantly more likely to die in any given year. And in fact, Statistics Canada calculated that if all Canadians were as, wealth, were, were as healthy as the wealthiest 20% of Canadians, we're not talking about the 1%, mm -hmm. if all Canadians were as wealthy as the top 20%, there would be 40,000 single, 40,000 less deaths each year. Wow, that's remarkable. So the, yeah, and uh, again, uh, to its credit, Public Health Agency of Canada, the uh, Canadian Information Health Institute puts out numerous reports, all of which we document in the Canadian facts that mm -hmm. demonstrate the effects of income. And uh, the, the most uh, disturbing aspect is that children who are living under low income, and the percentage of that is really high, especially in a city like Toronto, they not only have immediate adverse health effects, but they carry with them the effects of these adverse health effects such that children that are living in poverty, even if they leave poverty as adults, have a significant greater risk of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, as well as dying from these afflictions as well. My name is Joita Gupta, and my guest today is York University Professor Dennis Rayfield, who is talking to us about the social determinants of health. Professor Rayfield, before we, uh, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about income inequality in Canada. And one of the things about your report is it very clearly sets out recommendations to deal with improving each of the determinants of health. So what are some of the things you're recommending to reduce income inequality in Canada? To me, the most obvious one is to increase wages and improve the benefits that people have. Because when you have benefits such as hearing, vision, dental, pensions, disability insurance, mm -hmm. that frees up more money. So the easiest and best way to do that is to make it easier for workplaces to unionize. And it turns out that Canada has one of the lowest rates of unionization among wealthy developed countries. And countries that have greater members of labor unions tend to be the ones that are not only healthier with a more equitable distribution, they also, the labor movement comes to have a greater influence among making a progressive public policy. The other aspect is increasing pro progressivity. And clearly for those people, and we'll get to this in a minute, I guess, uh, the amount of money that Canada spends on supporting people with disabilities is mm -hmm. amongst the lowest of any wealthy developed country. So what you want to do is you want to basically say the problem is distribution of income and the solution is to make it more equitable. <laughs> and yes. numerous ways of doing this, whether it's uh, progressivity, in taxing, and that is taxing the wealthier at higher rates. To give you one example, in Scandinavian countries, the highest tax rate of about 45% or so kicks in 
when people earn 1.5 the average wage. So think mm-hmm. about that. If the average wage in uh, a country is 60000 once you are making 90000 mm-hmm. really you begin to pay many more uh, percentage in taxes. In Canada, that doesn't kick in until four times the average wage. Right. So if the average wage is 60000 it isn't until 240000 that that marginal tax rate kicks in. In the case of the United States, it's nine times the average Ah. wage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you want to also increase disability benefits. You want to uh, make social assistance benefits adequate for uh, decent living. The provision of a living wage, uh, and there's a living wage movement is related to all of that. Mm -hmm. And these are not magical. You just have to look at what's done in just about every other wealthy developed country. Exactly. Well, let's talk about people with disabilities. Uh, this is, of course, a population that deals with a number of challenges uh, based on the fact that, it, it, that, that, that there is a disability that's present. What were your, some of your research findings? Well, what you find on, on just about any indicator, percentage of people with disability employed, it's lower than people without disabilities. Mm-hmm. Of those that are employed, what percentage of them are full-time, that's lower than what it would be for the uh, uh, population without disabilities. When you look at benefits that are available, they tend to be lower than just about every other country. And I think a good way to summarize it, we have two charts in the Canadian facts. One of them is the percentage of the gross domestic product that a nation spends on supporting people with disabilities, either through compensation or through integration into the workplace. And Canada, out of 36 countries, is ranked the fifth lowest. We spend Mm. eight-tenths of 1% on disability-related benefits and supports. In contrast, countries such as Denmark, Norway, and Sweden spend more than 4% on that. So the way to think about it is like for every $1 that Canada allocates to support people with disabilities in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and uh, these three countries, they're spending $4. So as a result, people with disabilities in these countries have profoundly uh, more satisfied life because they're not going through day-to-day struggles. We have another chart that looks at 19 countries from 1990 to 2014, And among these 19 OECD countries, Canada ranks the absolute lowest in compensation, how much benefits are provided to people. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the amount of money that's spent on integration, we are below the average of these 19 countries. Besides raising the amount of money that Canada spends on support payments for people with disabilities, and we've got quite a ways to go to get caught up with a country like Norway, are there other recommendations that you would make? Well, we point out in the report that many people with disabilities who require modifications to the workplace, uh, most of these modifications are rather minor and would cost less than $2,000. But there's no provision or requirement or even support from the federal government in a significant way that would allow these modifications to take place. The Mm -hmm. specific uh, recommendations and policy implications we took from the UN Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And uh, we took those and some key recommendations by their special rapporteur on the Mm -hmm. rights of persons with disabilities. 
and these involve calling for a national policy in Canada to coordinate the implementation of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in Canada. We call, it calls for also for framing the issue of supporting people in human rights uh, perspectives rather than simply uh, social assistance. It calls for instituting provincial and territorial policies for fully inclusive education systems, which they found as being lacking. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Canada must implement comprehensive public policies that guarantee the access of persons with disabilities to the support they need. And I'll give you one example. Back in 2004, I was teaching a public policy and disabilities course, and a student got up and gave a presentation about the Toronto Transit Commission and had up on the slide that uh, accessibility had to be guaranteed by the year 2025. Mm -hmm. And I said, is that a typo? <laughs> 21 years to do this? And they mm -hmm. said, no. And now I've been reading the newspaper that uh, TTC and other uh, employers are already complaining that they don't have enough time to have done all of this. Oh, so goodness. tremendous amount of foot dragging, uh, lack of commitment, and uh, as I mentioned, uh, a pittance in the amount of money that Canada spends supporting people with disabilities as compared to other countries. I'm speaking to York University professor Dennis Raphael, who's talking to me about the social determinants of health. One of the issues that comes up a lot for people with disabilities is their access to health care and health care services. Uh, there's often a lot of, quote unquote, medical ableism that people might encounter. Uh, can you talk a little bit more generally about how access to health care services plays out within a health equity framework? Well, it turns out that Canada is... Uh among the top 10 countries in the amount of spending. But in terms of the range of healthcare services that are provided, we're amongst the lowest of OECD countries. Our spending only covers 70% of healthcare costs, with the rest being either paid out of pocket or through insurance. So we don't mm -hmm. cover pharmaceuticals, we don't cover some aspects of rehab, uh, I certainly have had some experiences with my hearing aids that uh, I was able to get a couple of thousand dollars from my university insurance plan, but the other mm -hmm. five or six thousand dollars had to come out of pocket. Uh, we don't cover dental. We don't cover dental for children. And again, I'm an example of if I was not in the employment situation and insurance situation I was in, I would have a lot fewer teeth than I have now. As I mentioned, I have a lot of trouble hearing, and certainly people with disabilities, uh, like many other people in Canada, do not have access to these kinds of medical services. And certainly in the news, uh, there's been profound privatization of health services, the most obvious example being uh, nursing homes and long-term care homes. There's also been privatization of uh, diagnostic services. And uh, the research very clearly indicates that these private services tend not to be of the quality of public services, and they also tend to be uh, of lower quality with the most obvious manifestation, what we've seen in many of the nursing homes where the death rates were much higher in private rather than public nursing homes.
Mm-hmm. It's certainly something that's been brought to the public's attention because of COVID-19. In the few minutes that we've got left, what are some of the recommendations you're making to improve health service delivery in this country? Well, not so much health service. you got to remember, I'm more into mm-hmm. the determinants of health than I am mm-hmm. with health services. For the health services, there's certainly been no shortage of recommendations uh, that are out there, either from the Romano Commission and other commissions on health. But uh, what happens is you tend to have very conservative governments coming in, privatizing things. And then when the somewhat more liberal parties come in, they never reverse any of the stuff that's been done. Mm -hmm. So what you have, what you need to do, at least from healthcare services, is do a systematic review of the public versus private uh, dilemma. Certainly, uh, there are things out there that any rational person would say would be the a no-brainer, such as pharmacare, yet we don't seem to be getting that. Mm-hmm. In terms of the broader determinants of health, the whole purpose, and when we did the first edition, uh, the document is actually uh, specifically entitled Social Determinants of Health, colon, the Canadian Facts. When we did this in 2010, we did this uh, on our own because there was a complete vacuum from government authorities, agencies on attempts to educate and then mobilize the public. Now, with rather little media coverage, that first document was downloaded 1.2 million times over the last Mm. 10 years. 85% of the downloads were Canadian. So in this second edition, we lay out specific things that need to be done. And the literature and the research is educate people, mobilize people, And the research indicates that you tend to get this kind of stuff when you have progressive political parties, usually of the left, but sometimes uh, they're called Christian Democratic parties in Europe, such Mm -hmm. as what we have with Angela Merkel in uh, Germany. We don't have We don't have any Christian Democratic parties. So we have the choice between liberal parties which interestingly include both the Liberal Party of Canada and the Conservative Party. And we talk about this, that the political scientists consider both of them to be liberal political parties. And the NDP is a social democratic party. In European countries, social democratic governments are strongly related to better and more equitable distribution not only of the determinants of health, but of healthcare services. Unfortunately, to date, political parties, including the NDP, have not really taken up the issue of social determinants of health. So Mm -hmm. one of the reasons we're putting this document out is to not only educate people and mobilize people, but actually also to make people angry and get them to the point, get Canadians to the point, where they say that this is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. This is not acceptable in a wealthy developed country to have these problems. Right. Professor Raphael, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, Suffice it to say that the time has really flown by and I wish we'd had more time to dig into this deeper. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you. That was Professor Dennis Raphael from York University speaking to us about the social determinants of health. That's a really uh, intense conversation we had today. And if you'd like to get caught up on any of it, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. 
We couldn't get to everything today. Uh, lots of important determinants we didn't get to talk about. Education, employment and work conditions, food security, to name a few. Uh, also factors like gender, being First Nations, being a racialized person or having indigenous ancestry. I would really encourage you to take some time and ponder the impact, not just singularly, but cumulatively of all of these factors on your health and the health of the people around you. And we will put up a link to the Social Determinants of Health report on our show blog, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'll also have a few remarks on the blog uh, today, but let's wrap it up. I'd like to thank Dennis Raphael for being my guest on the program today. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Paula Janine is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening to the program. You can find us at AMI-audio. You can find me at Chuita Gupta. Thanks a lot and take care of yourself. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.com. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts. CA.